Under the Bar Podcast. Uh, Tom Hewitt is my name, and with me as always is Rawdon DeBoer. Mm. With us as always is uh, Cam the on the buttons, but not as always. We're mm. actually, we're in a... You're sounding crisp. You're crisp, Tom. I wonder if they can pick up something different here. Any of our regular listeners would notice that mm. there's quite a lot. Like if I if I take my water bottle now mm. and, and I just... Ah, you can really well, look, pick it, up it, every it, detail. I think you're giving it a, a way there. Look, we're in a new new studio. New studio. The sound's pretty good. Uh, we've got a bell. I like that. That's nice. That's if uh, if something inappropriate has been said. We're going <laughs> to ring the bell. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, um, look, it's 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 nice. It's it, cozy. It's cozy. It's different. So, obviously, every episode up to this point, we've done at the Eagle Waves Radio Studio, which was situated in Cafe Vivo. Vivo yep. So we were surrounded. Uh, we were in a glass container in the middle mm. of the cafe, and it just <laughs> there was that cafe ambiance word of the day ambiance that was floating around, and you'd hear the noise, and you'd yep. hear the. The bells yep. and, and... Well, Tom, that wasn't the only thing floating around. No, that's what we also had, you know, various members of uh, the female species mm. uh, wandering back mm. and forth, which... Uh, biological women. And, and every now and then you'd hear Rod in the background going... Yeah, for, for no apparent reason. For no well, apparent. No, nobody knows what that, that means. So we're... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're in a new studio and yeah. uh, that's exciting. Yeah. So look, we'll see how it all goes and um, we'll do our very best to do... A well, terrible, terrible job. Yes. We don't want to change it and, uh, you know, lift our game, Tom. We want to... That, that, the one thing that you and I do, it's consistent. Consistency is king mm. and uh, we'll keep it consistently uh, lowbrow as we always do. Mm. Now, our very special guest on the episode this week, Rawdon, is Stefan Kazult. Yes. Long time coming. A long time coming. Long, long time overdue. coming from the uh, Kilo Strength Society. And uh, look, he certainly positioned himself as one of the top authorities on yeah. program design yeah. in the industry. And obviously from this conversation, you'll pick up the, the amount of detail that has gone into his systems and the, the data collection over a yeah. long period of yeah. time. And, and he the loves way the data. He loves the data, which is fascinating. But uh, a number of our clients yeah. and mutual colleagues have yep. gone and studied with him. Uh, Big John Salter from Uplift Athletic and uh, Joey Hall from Plus Fitness on my end. You've got yeah. a couple as well. Uh, yeah, well, um, Chris Delasica, uh, he's from the US, but uh, yeah. I know he spent a lot of time there. Uh, from Oz, Kyle Raggio and uh, Ty Phillips have been over and done little uh, yes. internships there, which he does. You can just rock up and spend a few days uh, with... Uh, Stefan and just just pick his brain, which mm. is uh, which is absolutely awesome. And everyone says it's just fantastic. And when mm. you come back and actually see the progression in their programming skills, it's mm. clear he's certainly onto a good thing over there. So yep. we've got uh, Stefan coming up very shortly. Really looking forward to that conversation. Rawdon, anything interesting happening over your side of the fence? Mate, uh, there's always there's always uh, bibs and bobs. There's yes. always uh, various <laughs> things that are, that are happening. Um, yeah, you know, it's not it's not always uh, paradise, mate. Sometimes there's trouble in paradise. Sometimes you, you, there is. You never yeah. know, but you just uh, chin up and uh, mm. soldier on. Yes, yeah, we fair do. Enough. I guess from my perspective, uh, I had a, a little chat with um, Mac Baker from the OPC Oxford Performance Centre. Yes, um, listens Good. to listens to the, the program. Friend foolishly. of the podcast. Yep. Yeah, foolishly yep. listens to the <laughs> loyally supports uh, what we do and comes yes. to our seminars. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, for some reason, yeah. <laughs> but he's a, he's a he's a really cool guy, and um, had a good chat with him. And, and he he, unlike you and I, we just sort of 
you know, we have the program and we can talk about various things, but we, we don't necessarily get too caught up in the the razzle-dazzle of the industry. And, um, you know, maybe if, if, if there are uh, certain uh, Insta celebrities that are, that are preaching various things, we don't take it upon ourselves to... Uh, to disagree with them or you know they're doing what they do we you know we, we is it switzerland where we just just neutral we don't really go one way or the other yeah. yes yeah well that's what we do but yeah. but mac he, he ain't switzerland mate he's um takes he, a stance takes a stance and he's uh, i think just finished up the uh, martin mcdonald the mac nutrition certification so it's a year-long mm. uh, nutrition certification and um and uh, he, he was just talking to me about how there are some in the industry that sort of make uh, the process of, of nutrition and and certainly um, uh, dieting and, and body composition change from a nutritional perspective very very complicated mm. and um, yeah we had a, we had a chat about that and he was got quite uh, quite you know a lot of uh, I think there was fist pumping and uh, <laughs> hands thumping down the table and, yes and I think his point was <clears throat> that that it is like what you and I have said in the past I mean if you get a fundamental grasp on energy balance and you know, you're nice and consistent. Then, uh, then usually, I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, and usually you can achieve, you know, body composition change quite a, a effectively. And but it probably is your, your your bread and butter and the neat meat and nuts of it. But uh, he he just feels that uh, you know these people of influence sort of complicate something that doesn't necessarily need to be that complicated. Like uh, understand the the, the basics, mm. get that right, and then if still things don't start, then by all means, you know, look look uh, laterally or. or, or potentially um, dig a little deeper as to why things aren't uh, progressing the way they should. But uh, from the perspective of, of because they have such significant influence in the industry, to make something far more complicated than what it uh, potentially is, like the very basics he's talking about, it's just a almost a disservice. A you disservice know? to the followers. Yeah, to That's the followers. Like it just doesn't yeah. have to be... Interesting perspective. But the thing is, and, and he, he, sorry to cut you off, and he, yeah. it was like, but it doesn't sell. Like it's boring. You know, it's like, well, this is your energy balance. Eat a little less, eat a little more. Mm. You know, you know what I mean. It's 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 not exciting. You know, it's almost you want things to be a little more complicated, complicated than what they are. And and uh, we have had this discussion before, Rod, and it's an interesting one. Like if you say we had uh, the evil genius Broderick Chavez mm. here, and, and he could break things down very simply from a, a biological yeah, f- or, a, physiological, or a physiological yeah. perspective, and you could say, okay, well. Let's do something schmancy and we'll, we'll, we'll drop your carbs and your calories down for, for seven days and yep. then we'll bring uh, carbs up and, and we'll cycle them for three days. It'll be mm. a 10-day cycle and we'll mm. go, we'll go uh, low, then medium, then high here and then we'll drop this and yep. we'll fat here. And we'll, and fat we'll load here, protein fat load there. here and blah, 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 blah and all this sneaky stuff. If you actually took that cycle and repeated it three times, so that was 30 days mm. and you had a, a really good result at the end of those 30 days, if you did exactly the same thing and took those same amount of macronutrients and calories and just spread them evenly out over yeah. the 30 days... It's very boring, that time. Very boring. You'd still arrive at the same result at the end. Potentially, yeah. The one benefit that the schmanciness does have, if you can create this nice magical up and down and in and out and, and create... In and out. You know, create a little bit of intrigue from the client's yes. perspective and they and they get excited and they go, okay, yeah. I can go really hard here for the seven days and yep. I'm going to get this here. It's going to do this. It's going to yep. do that. Yep. They can actually buy into the yeah. process a little more and, and it would have value from that perspective, if nothing uh, else. A hundred percent. And sometimes that is the method to the madness yeah. is, is that's significant you know, but you should they, just be you should be open and honest about that yes yeah like keep not the, not try the, and pre- the, present it as it is something magical because it's it's really not no yeah. it's just the fact that you ate a little less than what you needed for what you were doing and yeah. that's why the body fat loss occurred exactly but um 
hey man, give me a shout out, bro. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a little uh, hot. And, and it's interesting, his demographic is a little different to what uh, what a lot of our listeners target. And he's a young kid himself, and and he is uh, targeting the you know the youth, so mm. sort of high school, getting in early, just teaching the basics of nutrition and how to have a, a structure, a nice basic eating plan. You know, lots of variety. You know, lots of fruits, vegetables, proteins, fats, and uh, yeah. and understanding energy balance. You know, and, and keeping it all really, really simple. It's a valuable skill and one that should be. It actually should be part of an educational curriculum. Learning about yeah. nutrition and, and your own physiology would it's, make the world yeah. a much better place. It's yeah. really good to get the, the basic grasp on those fundamentals. Yep. Mate, I went to a, uh, a really interesting seminar not last week. So two Wednesdays ago, uh-huh. um, we had a day off from the studio. I think the studio was in transit by a guy called Benjamin Harvey who has a company called Authentic Education. Uh, those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while will know I've done a bit of study with Dr. John Demartini, yep, a couple yep. of his certifications. Uh, this guy uh, has done some work with Aussie. him, has toured Australian, has yep. toured with him and actually uh, a good client of mine, uh, Ramsey, mm-hmm, Ramsey mm-hmm. Choker, had recommended I do some study with this guy. He's uh, Ramsey's done a few of his courses. Well, Ramsey's uh, a, I mean, he's a, a go-getter, that guy. So yes. If, if he recommends it, I'll probably jump on board. Yeah, he, he uses him for business consulting and this kind of stuff. And it was a course just on general coaching, so personal and life coaching. Mm-hmm. But at the start, he was talking about skill acquisition and about what happens in the brain. And um, I'll, I'll just let everyone know that as a personal trainer, I am obviously a, a dietitian and a yes, doctor. We well, are. Now that I've done this seminar, I'm now a, a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. just so like Luke Tullett, there's yeah, two of you now. Yeah, two just, of you on the program. So everyone's aware of that. But um, any behavior change he classifies as a skill acquisition. Yep. The analogy he gave was you know, if you throw a, a three year old a tennis ball, they'll go to catch it, it'll fly past them. And then, you know, they'll be late on it. But in that instant, there would be a neural pathway form. Yeah. Um, and so we could use it for a bench press. The first time you get someone underneath yep. the bar, they will they will set up a neural pathway, a neural pathway yep. for that movement or that activity. And then there's a process of, or there's a substance in the brain called myelin, oh. which is like a fatty insulating substance. That myelin we, sheath? Yes, the myelin sheath. Oh. And these things uh, grow and wrap around axons or the pathways that connect neurons. Yeah. And the, the thicker and the more dense this fatty insulation is, the more efficient the actual signal becomes. And so once you set up that first pathway, then it needs repetition and practice and the more you do these things the more uh, myelin or the more myelination occurs and you have this thicker more insulating myelin sheath and the messages from the brain yeah. uh, travel through much faster and efficiently so is this um like the action potentials and and motor, motor units and exactly synchronization yes that type of exactly yeah. so it accelerates the it accelerates the action potential basically by insulating the axon from external yep. electrical activity from yeah. the sodium and potassium and, and whatever is going on in there you know this is where i'm, I'm a neuroscientist Rodan, so it's important <laughs> that's pretty detailed <laughs> yeah. uh yeah yes I mean, but it's been a little while since i read that but and, yeah. and interestingly enough the process of myelination will occur more rapidly if your brain knows it's for a long-term outcome so if you the analogy he gave here was if you travel to another country and you know you're only there for six weeks you'll pick up little bits of pieces yeah. of the language in that six weeks you'll come home and you'll forget it but if you move there and you know you're staying there for two yeah, years yeah, yep, yep, in yep, that yep. first six week period of time you will learn a lot more of the language and it will be a lot more permanent because you know it's necessary for a long period of time so 
from a training perspective, having someone committed to a, a longer term outcome yeah. will enhance the efficiency at which they develop their skills within the gym. And that's comes very back interesting. To, uh, to getting that, uh, hey, that's why I only work with, uh, you know, physique athletes that yeah. have that end goal. Yeah. Maybe that uh, is, is, and uh, I'm sure you do, one of the things you would do is, okay, end goal, what are we working towards? And I think a lot of our listeners know that that's part of the process, but, but it's interesting that there's a little more method yeah. to the madness when you dig a little deeper. It's very interesting. Certainly all the listeners uh, to this podcast would have great levels of myelination around all of their oh, yeah. all of their training pathways or mm. you know bench pressing and squatting everything with a cam on the other instance his his neural pathways no. his myelination for pushing buttons and and doing very radio good. shows be very good very good bench press making making monkey so noises yeah, yeah. Oh, very good very good mm. very good han solo my, like. <laughs> very good myelination on the wookie <laughs> yes yeah club, club minigoni so that's uh, that's something interesting um all right mate should we head to get into our, get into stefan stefan kazult from the kilo strength society Well, Rodden, I mean, I think when you, you reflect on your days in the in the fitness industry uh-huh. and where it all began as a personal trainer, and um, there's a, a certain point in your career mm. where you start to feel you're getting a grasp on the actual, the most fundamentally important thing of being a trainer, uh-huh. and actually the skill of programming yeah. and writing good programs. Yeah, I, I it's quite a, a defining moment when I uh, went down that route instead of ad hoc, basically, uh, what are we due for? We lid legs on, on Tuesday, it's yeah. upper body today, let's see what's free, okay, the bench press is free, let's jump on that. Yeah. And then throw it together, but there was a, a point back when I was at Fitness First uh, up at Hornsby there, and um, mm. In that commercial setting where, you know, I started getting uh, coached by, uh, uh, you know, Dane McDonald way back in the day and um, really loved the, the method to the madness of, of programming and it all sort of, you know, obviously back then my, my skill set wasn't as as probably profound as what it is now with, with certain programming principles and those sorts of things mm. but I really love the you know get introduced to tempos and rest periods and A1, A2 and all this cool stuff and um, yeah that's what uh, really intrigued me and interested me and obviously I went down that route with the whole programming side of things then all my clients got programs and it was far more complicated and I think I started making less money because I wasn't just throwing things together but yeah. uh, but I was much happier with the product that I had once I sort of delved more into the programming side of things and then the consistency for my clients was, was much better as well mm. yeah I find programming you know when there's a whole stack of them to do very quickly yeah. it, it can be tough but yeah. we have actually got time to it's fun to, it, it's a lot of fun it's yeah. a it's a the creative outlet of, um, of, of personal training and coaching which is really cool so uh, long overdue that our next guest stefan kazult from mm. the kilo strength society mm-hmm. has joined us and certainly well renowned as one of the the world's authorities yeah. on programming he's guru swami of programming guru swami yeah. stefan thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast mate Hey, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you guys. I tell you what, it's a beautiful looking gym yeah. you've got over there, mate. Thank you, thank you. Really proud of it. Yeah, I can see why. I, I was over there. Uh, I loitered around there, and I made him buy me a a coffee and picked his brain, uh, which he, you know, didn't didn't charge me anything for. So I still got to fix you up for that, <laughs> Stefan. But <laughs> but he did give me a tour of the gym, and it was yeah, mind blowing, mate. It's it's uh, impeccably clean as well. Touch of the Shredded Strength Institutes over in Perth yeah. with uh, Marty and Kelly. Yeah. Always keeping it, uh, but just the, the layout. It's all there's enough room to do everything. Like very mm. very thoughtful, and it, it looks like it's a it's a huge for any of our listeners that do have facilities. What's how big is it actually there, Stefan? I'm not sure in square meters, but it's six thousand square feet, so it's yeah. pretty big. Pretty mm, big yeah. for 
a nice studio side gym. Yeah, nice open plan. There's there's plenty of room. Yeah, you get you, nice you color get, scheme. It looks yeah. good. It's, it's got the whole lot. Soothing so, colors. Yeah, very much so. So, Stefan, can you just um, for those who don't know, can you give us a bit of a background as to your progression through the industry and from when you started to the point now where you're, um, you know, really the the master of your own domain with that beautiful facility over there? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, like my my love for strength training started very early on. Like I was 11 years old when I started lifting. And you know, like my generation, like I grew up like watching He-Man. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys remember that, but yeah, yeah. Jack cartoons and all that stuff. Yeah. So and you know, like in the eighties you had Schwarzenegger, you had Stallone and Rocky Four and Ivan Drago and all these guys. Mm-hmm. So like from a very young age I was like kind of obsessed with the whole like bodybuilding look and so I, you know, I started training in my garage with like those old school, like York cement and yeah. plastic barbell weights. Yep. And then it kind of evolved to uh, training for American football and then went to university. And at that point, like I was done with football. So I hired um, Larry Vinette, who was like a physique prep coach uh, yep. up in Montreal. And I trained with him for seven years and made my programs. Wow. So I would go to his office every month and would show me the exercise and stuff. So he was like, he was truly my first mentor because like I, I really spent time and learned a lot from him. But pri- what was interesting for me with Larry is prior to this, I was reading all the magazines and I started reading Muscle Media 2000 yep. uh, while I was doing my bachelor's degree in exercise science. And I remember like, I think it was 96 or 97, I'm reading this article from Charles Polican. And, you know, like you had the A1 and you had the, the three-digit tempo at the time yeah. and the rest period in seconds. And I, I remember like being very intrigued and blown away by this because like the rest was like, it was always like three sets of 10 and blah, blah. They never talked about tempo or rest period. Yeah. And I like kind of piqued my curiosity. And when I went to uh, see Larry, and I went to see Larry because I saw him won the Quebec National Championship. And I'm like, man, I, I want to have his physique. So I went straight to him. Yeah. And the, the first program he gave me, I see A1, A2, I see tempos, I see rest periods. I'm like, wow, like, you know about that stuff? And then, like, he used to do, like, some underground, like, courses with Charles in the early 90s in Montreal. So it was kind of cool because he, he kind of gave me, like, even more insight on the whole, like, PICP and Charles stuff. And yeah. And then it kind of evolved after my bachelor's degree. I, I did some con- continuing education with like uh, Charlie Francis, Ian King, John Berardi, Charles Polican, Eric Serrano, and all these guys. And wow. it evolved from there. Uh, I did my first biosig in 2001. It was like a one, a two-day course, <laughs> one day on the supplements, one day on energy system. Like it was super overwhelming because he's like talking about Shazandra Sh- Berry and. Ginemna Sylvest, and you can only get it like in, a, in the Chinese, uh, in the, Ch- the Chinese uh, Chinatown, you know. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So kind of overwhelming. Then did the PICP one and two in 2004. I got hired to Central Institute for Human Performance in 2005 in St. Louis, Missouri. So I moved to the United States at that point in time. And that's where I started training a lot of athletes. Started with NHL and hockey, evolved to the NFL, evolved to Major League Baseball. Then in 2010, 11, and 12, I was a, hired as a consultant with the St. Louis Cardinals in baseball. Then 2012, I was hired by Pollock Group, so I moved to Rhode Island. 
started to work there for a year and a half with Charles before he left. And then I, I became the director of strength conditioning and education there until 2016, where I left in January to come to California to start Kilo. Wow. Okay. Pretty much uh, ticking all the boxes for a, uh, I'm sure there'd be, you know, many listeners that would be going, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. I, you know, I want to experience, want to work with those teams and I want to have my own facility. Was that always a vision of yours that, you know, some sort of progression like that where you ended up with your own facility or did it evolve over time? I always wanted to have it, but it's kind of one of these things that it was always in the back of my mind, but I was, I was not really thinking about it. Yeah until and that's the cool thing is like during my times in st louis uh i was the uh the the head strength coach there and i was also managing the staff i was involved in the financials of the company and kind of the same thing happened in st louis i was uh, in uh Pollican group i was like behind the scenes uh, dealing with the accounting dealing with the the supplement side the education side so the whole business point of view of the whole industry I was very intriguing to me so it was kind of like the trigger that led me to be you know what I think I think I have enough experience now I think it's time for me to start my own place and I've always wanted to live in California so I'm like for for once in my life I can actually choose exactly where to be so Mm. I went straight to Southern California and we chose Huntington Beach yeah, unfortunately, when I was there at, uh, early in the year, Tommy, it was, uh, I think it was torrential rain. I think we got a little bit of sunshine, but it right. was uh, particularly bad for California. Um, and, and, yeah, and, which is really weird because it never <laughs> rains. And, and I think that you said it was like the first lot of rain you've had in, in months and yeah. months and months. So, yeah, well, that's the way it is. Uh, and, and your vision for Kilo, I think you were saying that you, you anticipate having a, you get the one in Huntington Beach up and running, you know, uh, doing what it does really well, and then a few more around around the, the, the U.S.? Was that your vision? Yeah, that's our goal. I mean, like, um, we've, we've been open almost two years. It's going to be two years in January 2019. At that point, we're, like, we're going to start thinking of opening up other locations, like in the Orange County area. Yeah. We kind of want, we want to saturate the area first. And then we might evolve to uh, like, you know, like we have demands for San Francisco and places like that. So we're, we're just going to start local first and maybe like spread uh, if the demand yeah. is working. Mm. Well, That's look, you know, uh, Tommy, uh, what's your email, Tom? TommyHewitt.com. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you can yeah. shoot us an email if you yeah. need a few, uh, you know, some managers or we could just float around <laughs> and, uh, you know, train and stuff if you just need someone to do that yeah. and pay us, of course. <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah. Uh, um, there's a million questions we could ask yeah. you about your time in uh, professional sports, Stefan, but what was it like in those team environments being a head coach? Would you actually program for everyone individually? Would you program by position on the field? Or we, how did you structure managing that, that amount of people? Yeah, I mean, I was extremely fortunate in my career with the athletes in the sense that the private facility I worked with, what happened is it was one of those, like, it was one of the first, like, um, one-stop shop, if you want, where we had chiropractors, we had nurses giving IVs, and then we had the strength coaches. So it was one of those, like, high-end price point for the athletes where they paid one fee for the year but then we would provide whatever service they needed Mm -hmm. so these guys they were private clients so it was like a full-on service right now when i started consulting with the st louis cardinals 
um, the task they gave me was to write the program for all the players of the team. And during spring training, uh, during the preseason, I would fly down to uh, Florida and evaluate uh, the entire farm team system. There was about 76 players to evaluate. Wow. And so I was in charge of writing all the programs and the head strength coach of the St. Louis Cardinals was running the programs with the athletes on site. So I was, necess- I was not necessarily on site at the stadium every day, but I was in control of the programs. And what was interesting is in, in sports, a lot of people tend to go like by position, but I'm not, my view of athletic training, especially in team sports environment, is you're, I'm training an athlete, not a pitcher, not a shortstop. And in my opinion, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So I would focus more on that. And the thing that people forget sometimes is a lot of these athletes, like NHL players, MLB players, they're great baseball players, but they're not necessarily like the greatest trainees in the weight room, you Mm, know? Yeah. So to me, I would kind of, after the evaluation, I would separate the players in five different groups. So I had like, let's say the, the lower back group, the hip group, the knee group, the elbow, the shoulder group. So like whatever their biggest weaknesses or area of injury was the most prevalent, I would put these guys into that group and they would have that specific program irrespective of their position. Because I was just trying to build uh, a more balanced, more structurally fit athlete. So that was my my vision. And obviously the thing about pro sports, once you get in there, there's a lot of politics. So yeah. the, the head orthopedic surgeon is challenging you all the time, the head athletic trainer, then obviously the strength coach there didn't really like me because he felt like I was stealing his job and blah, blah. So there's a lot of bullshit around the whole thing. But nevertheless, it was a very, very uh, fun experience for me. Tell me, uh, Stefan, are they, as a, a demographic, I would assume they'd be, you know, pretty compliant with following the program? Or did you find that some would, you know, really follow the program as well and others would be a little, huh, you know, they don't really apply themselves in the gym? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all. The thing is, the the athletes who would pay for private, uh, like private training, then they were extremely compliant. They were extremely motivated. Now the the other guys, you know, and sometimes it's cultural. Like in baseball, there's a lot of like Dominican players, and uh, in their culture, like weight training is not necessarily something they do. So it was a maybe a little harder sell for them to get them motivated to train. Yeah. Uh, during the off season, but I would say for the most part, people were pretty compliant. Yeah, well, you'd, you'd, you'd think so at, at, the, at that high end sport, mm. I suppose. We'll get on to the programming yeah. very shortly, but Stefan, I'm interested. Actually, Rodden and I spoke about this this morning. Every now and then, LeBron James will put up Instagram or social media videos of himself training, and it's it's just a tiny little snapshot of what his week of training would be. I'm sure. But I do look at it and, yeah. and I and I think, wow, you shudder. You know, exactly. is that really, is that effective? I mean, it's just very different to what we would consider strength training. I mean, what, what, what do you have an opinion on that? Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, most of the most of the stuff on training I see online, in my opinion, is always crap. But yeah. uh, man, it's hard with these guys, man, because somebody like LeBron, he's so talented. Yeah, uh, he's so gifted in the sport. Like, to what extent is the training uh, really helping his performance? It's hard to say, but now mm-hmm. the thing that we don't really know, 
is what's his injury in his injury rate like yeah. how does he actually feel so maybe he doesn't have a traumatic injury but maybe his elbows are aching all the time maybe his shoulder is aching all, but we don't really know that we don't have that information and mm. the thing is that's where like proper training would actually affect the whole thing because i mean lebron james like he's six foot eight two sixties lean shredded talented um, that I have him train and increase his vertical jump by six inches, it won't really change anything. Yes. Especially in a sport like basketball where they're, ne they're never going all out on anything anyways. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's a little tricky with these things sometimes, but, you know, to me it's all fluff. It's it's stuff that, yeah. like I remember, like I used to train a lot of uh, uh, linemen, offensive linemen of American football. And they're all, you know, they're big, strong, powerful guys. And I remember having a lot of guys coming off of, uh, it used to be called Athletes Performance back in the days. Now it's uh, uh, Exos. But, you know, like it, they were doing all these drills type of stuff and they would come yeah. in so weak, so weak. Mm. But, but the athletes, the young athletes, they loved it because it was fresh for them. It was new. It was different from the, what they were used to in high school and college. So they bought into it. But it's only after a couple of years they realized, man, I'm getting pushed around. I can cope with the D-tackle coming at me. Yeah. What's the problem? Maybe it's because I'm too weak. And that's usually when they revert back to a more classical style training. I mean, that, that was interesting. And this is the conversation that, that Tommy and I, part of the conversation this morning was, yeah, I wonder how much it would actually. I mean, if he did, LeBron James, if if he did, uh, you know, do some structured, yeah, you know, more structured uh, strength training, whether it would actually improve his game in any way. And and you're saying, yeah, it's probably not. But the injury prevention um, would be a big uh, attribute to these guys. Is that something that, with the, uh, you know, structured resistance training, you can actually you know, reduce the amount of injuries. Like, it's another way to look at, instead of, oh, let's improve performance, it's like, well, let's improve longevity at that yeah. performance yeah. by limiting uh, injuries. Yeah, exactly. And th there's that aspect, but also a very forgotten aspect. And to me, it's always been very important for me because I, I almost uh, did my master's in uh, neurophysiology. And one aspect that we tend to forget about proper weight training is the impact it has on the nervous system's ability uh, to recover and tap in the right more units. Mm -hmm. So when, when you're always doing that bullshit training, it's fine, you're burning calories, something's happening, but you're not necessarily stimulating the nervous system the way it needs to be stimulated mm -hmm. for an athlete of that level to keep performing over and over and over and over injury-free. So that's something that's lost sometimes and when you're when you're not training properly, that's one of the big factors. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that would be one of my primary criticisms of a lot of the stuff that you see. No matter what context it's in, quite often range of motion is just never... It, it, that would be just one thing you could pick up and just say, okay, even if we just worked on that, the neural adaptations to doing so or, or taking movements to end range positions and the benefit that could have with injury prevention and all that kind of stuff would even just be one area to work on. Yeah, like a good example when it comes to uh, like range of motion like you're talking about. Like for example, I like to use the I-bar Olympic style back squat. And it's not that I'm dogmatic in the, my approach to training, but if I'm training an athlete, I'm not training an athlete, I'm not using an athlete for him to become better at squat, I'm using the squat for him to be a better athlete. 
So yeah. if I'm using the Ibar Olympic style squat, which uh, reinforces uh, full range of motion at the ankle, knee joint, uh, ankle, and shoulder girdle, well, I'm getting more out of the exercise than using the powerlifting style low bar squat where it's more posterior chain dominant with not a lot of uh, ankle uh, movement, with not a lot of knee movement. And then people would argue, yes, but you can use so much more weight. Yes, but I don't, that's not why I use it. Yeah. And that's mm. not what the athlete needs to perform the sport he's doing. Because if you're training a running back and he's cutting to the left and he has a linebacker on his shoulder, well, he's in full knee flexion. He needs to be able to withstand the load of the linebacker coming at him. But if you never train that, like what's going to happen to that athlete? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, there's all these perspectives that you need to think about when you're dealing with athletes compared to like a, a, a very unidimensional sport, like let's say shot put or a sport like powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting where it's like one thing, one plane of movement, right? Yeah, mm. yeah fascinating. All right, then, I mean, obviously, you're very passionate about working with the athletes, Stefan, but um, you run a business, you've got a lot of more general population people coming through there, and there's the two different approaches to programming. So stepping back and having a look at the big picture of the process of programming, where does it all kind of start for you, and, and is there, a, I guess, a philosophy that underpins your approach yeah. to this process? Yeah, I mean... I'm very strength-oriented by nature. It's just, uh, I guess, my my view of strength training. And I, I, I firmly believe that the industry is um, trying to be too um, pigeonholed with training. And what I mean by that is you have your fat loss training, you have your hypertrophy training, you have your strength-only training. And people look at strength training like in those little windows and, and listen, I sell fat loss programs, I, so I understand the business, but the reality and what I'm trying to teach uh, the students who do courses at Kilo is that strength training is strength training, and the side effect of strength training is you grow bigger and you grow stronger. Okay, so to me, th- that, that's the, the beginning. So if you, if you're, if you don't want to gain muscle mass, you have to accept that you're never going to be as strong as you want. And if you don't want to get stronger, yeah, you're going to have to accept that you're not going to be as big as you want because they're they're interconnected. Yeah. Um, so you know. So with that in mind, um, if I'm dealing with a one-on-one client, I'm not talking about group here, but I'll do a evaluation. I'll, I'll look at the strengths and weaknesses of the athletes, and. Uh, I use strength ratios to try to balance the athlete as we're going through our strength training. And I like to uh, split the training with the A series focusing on the primary compound movements, usually barbell work, uh, simply to improve intra and intermuscular coordination to get the lifter more efficient with their training. Uh, and then I move on to the B series where it's more assistance work that will, uh, I'll use this to kind of help with the uh, primary work. And then I finish with remedial uh, exercise in the C-series, which are typically single joint, which is there a little bit more for prehab, rehab, or simply fine-tuning weaker muscles like the neck or uh, even like uh, biceps or brachioradialis or stuff like that are usually limiting factors. So that's pretty much the premise that I use with team sport athletes that I kind of pulled and tweaked a little bit for the gen pup because in my opinion, Gen pop is kind of like team sport athletes in the sense that 
I don't necessarily want them to do 12 sets of squats in a workout. They don't need that. They need to be well-rounded. So I need for them to do, yes, the squat for that intra-intramuscular coordination, but they still need to do a unilateral, like tight, like split squat type movement at one point. They still need to do isolated, like hip extension at one point. So I, it's kind of like the same approach in a way. Uh, it's more the extent of the training method and rep schemes that are going to differ from the athletic population to the gen pop. Mm, that makes a Very lot of good. sense. Yeah, Very awesome. Good. You mentioned those exercises, uh, Stefan, and, and I know at Kilo you do have, uh, you work around the concept of the prime eight. So back yeah. squat, front squat, deadlift, overhead press, incline press, bench press, dip, and a pull up. So that's it, Rod, that's a nice list of compounds. If everyone's doing well in those, they're, you know, not too much can go wrong. Um, how do you start working progression in all across all of those movements, building strength across the spread like that, and putting these exercises into a, a macro cycle of training, for instance? Yeah. So I mean, so these these eight exercises. First of all, they're there for a reason. If if you look at the eight of them, aside from the chin up variation, they're all extensor type exercises, because uh, in athletics, uh, your extensor like power output of your extensor is what makes you or breaks you as an athlete uh, so they tend to be better suited for these primary and I do have a chin-up variation because it is a, a multi-joint upper back exercise and your chin-up strength kind of serve as a springboard for the power of extensors to take play so that's why it's really important for me but the base are more those extensors. So you have your squat, front squat, and deadlift as far as lower body goes. And then for upper body is these four pressing exercise. Uh, my goal here is to cover the entire 180 degree spectrum of angles because the strength you gain is highly angle specific. So for example, I, I like to give that example, but in 2007, I trained a lineman from the Cleveland Browns. And he, his one arm bench press was 200 kilos. But his overhead press, and I'm not kidding, his overhead press was 42 kilos. So <laughs> wow. That's, wow. that's a crazy strength discrepancy, but here's it. So, he, he, you know, he had shoulder issues. Uh, he, he was suffering on the field because depending on the, the way the defensive tackle would attack him and depending on which type of uh, blocking scheme he would run, sometimes he would get bulldozer because he couldn't protect as soon as his arm was above shoulder level. Yeah. And, but see, but this guy in college, he, his strength coach was from the West Side influence. And the team he played for in Cleveland, his strength coach from the West Side barbell influence. So it was very powerlifting oriented. So the only press he would ever do was bench press, bench press, bench press, bench press. Mm -hmm. But see, cool, you have a good bench press, but what about the other angle? So, so that's why the primate have the overhead, the inclined to press and the dip because I need you to get stronger across the board. And obviously, the, the lower your arms are, AKA the dip, the stronger you are, the, the higher your, your hands, the angles arise above over your head, the weaker you become. So you can't keep working your bench and dip, bench and dip, because now you're creating an even bigger discrepancy because your overhead and incline will always be weaker. So the way I does, I, I work with the primate is I have two base microcycles in which I use all of these eight exercises. And depending on the strength ratios, 
uh, the weakest link of the client, I'll typically attack the weakest upper body link, the weakest lower body link, and depending on the weakest link, the training split will differ, but it's still going to be based on these two base microcycles. So for example, if my guy has a, a weak bench press, let's say, well, like I'll typically train the bench press during the intensification phases because the intensification is a, no, a notion of load, of intensity. Yep. So it carries over better to improving a, a projected 1RM score. So I'll keep that for intensification. So then the other, the other accumulation, then I'll train the other angles and, and on and on. So that's how I, I, I go about it. And then as far as progression, obviously, you know, you have people who can't do a chin at first. That's fine. I, I, like, unless you're morbidly obese, I'll just give you a chin-up progression where we're focusing on an isometric technique at first, then we're moving on to an isometric technique, uh, eccentric technique, to yeah. isometric technique, and on and on. And people tend to, uh, to be, do good with that. Like, we had this woman, she couldn't do anything uh, chin-up-wise. We did the progression three months after. I'm like, okay, Kim go and do chins and she's like i can't do chins you know i can't i'm like yes you can go and she did four the first time right yeah, so that's very 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 empowering for the general population and same thing with squats at first sometimes they go on and their squat is horrible but i don't care like you give me what you got if you can only go down halfway that's fine go halfway i'm gonna cue you along the way but I still want you to do the movement because you can do as many split squat progression as you want. You can do like 12 weeks, 16 weeks split squat progression and be really good at it. Now I, I get a barbell on your back and ask you to squat, you still need to learn to squat. Yeah. Mm. So that's why I don't like wasting time with that. I, I get you to jump right into it and then we just work with what you give me. And very quickly we're able to get people to perform. And, and then, uh, so progression, so we have, I think, from memory, three-week mesocycles for you? Yes. So, three weeks, and throughout that three weeks, you're seeing progressive overload via um, load going on the bar each week and volume increasing? Like, how, how do you like to uh, the progressive overload to occur? Is it... Talk to me in yeah, regards to that, man. I mean, with gen, pop, with gen pop, I don't like double progressions. I think it's too much. So I typically focus uh, on the load. Yep. So an, an increase in load from week to week. So it's th for three weeks, you're increasing the load on your lift. Uh, and, and the reason why I like three weeks, uh, to me, it's really important. First of all, like on a psychological standpoint, a lot of clients, they like the three weeks because sometimes it seems like adding a fourth week mentally they get bored yeah so it's good on, on that effect but the reason why i'm doing three weeks it's more in a physiological perspective and it takes about like after three weeks that's when you start detraining a previously trained quality so if for example in in uh, mesocycle one i'm doing overhead press and bench as my two upper body lifts yeah uh and then i'm training this for three weeks that's fine, but now if I keep on going beyond three weeks, now I'm going to start detraining my incline and my dip angles. So right when I start detraining, right. I change mesocycle and I bring back the other angles. So, it, you know, there, there's no true detraining over uh, your training period. Yeah, that's a very interesting yeah. way of looking at things. I, I certainly, uh, Rudin, in the earlier days, 
I used to probably program a little bit more like that and over time I've, I sometimes I would find that to build progression in one of those lifts they'd need a bit more exposure to it particularly for general population just because of the I guess that motor learning aspect they go from a bench press one phase and then maybe into a dip or something or, or an overhead press then you come back to the bench and there's a they spend a week just kind of figuring it out again and relearning yeah so there, obviously there must be a way Steph you program your assistance work to still keep some of those qualities they've built in the in the mesocycle before <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, it's that's inter- your question is interesting because it took me a while to figure that out. But mm. what I've noticed is, if you overload uh, angles, especially for a upper body pressing exercise around the shoulder joint, if you overload angles for a three week period, and you back off for the next mesocycle and train the other angles, you'll have a super compensation effect greater than if you're trying to attack every angle within one mesocycle. So what I do, I, I call I call it the 90 degree principle. So what I do is, if on upper body one on Monday I'm doing the overhead press, my upper body two on Thursday I'll be doing the bench press because the arm angle from overhead to flat bench it's 90 degrees, and yeah. then within the same session, if my A one is my overhead press, my B one for assistance lift might be a flat dumbbell press. So I'm still doing 90 degrees within the session, mm-hmm. 90 degrees within the microcycle. So I'm overloading angles. So that's even one more reason why I can't afford to go uh, longer than three weeks because if I do that, I'll completely detrain the other two angles. Mm. But that, but it, it took me a while. But And my interpretation of it has to do with if you're training overhead press on Monday and then you're training incline press on Thursday, the angle are somewhat similar. So the recovery curve would dip too low and my progression wouldn't be as big. On the flip side, if I'm doing overhead press on Monday and dip on Thursday, the angles are so dissimilar that there's no carryover. So it seemed like when I looked at my data, I always had better peaking numbers when I did the 90 degree principle across the micro and the training session. So that's what I've been doing. So I, I, it's not, I'm not really hitting everything. Now, the only lift that I train every week, all the time, no matter what, is the back squat. Because this, you can lose your groove very quickly if you get away from it. Mm, yeah. Awesome, awesome stuff, uh, Stefan. And what sort of progression are you looking at for, for our listeners? Um, obviously, it would vary from person to person, but what... what you know, you're happy with a couple of kilos on the bench press, or do you have certain percentages you like to see, or is it just any sort of progression from week one to two to three is is uh, satisfactory? I mean, on a week to week basis, from workout to workout, on the exact same exercise, uh, you can expect gains anywhere from two to five percent. The more beginner you are, the bigger the gains. The more advanced, the smaller the gains. Yep. But uh, over a 12-week uh, macro cycle, uh, whatever lift you're focusing on, so let's say your incline press is your weakest point and this becomes your predictor lift, you can expect gains of minimum about 20% uh, improvement on that lift. But, but this is because of the implement of special techniques that are geared and directed towards that specific lift, but you won't get that kind of gain across the board. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
I think uh, what you said about the pressing being angle specific is is so true, Stefan. And do you find that the limiting factor quite often with that, you mentioned the example of the NFL player with a strong bench but a very weak overhead. Do you find a limiting factor to be some sort of uh, either pain or um, biomechanics as the limiting the limiting factor there? Uh, for sure. I mean, it's multifaceted. It depends on the client, obviously. But on a general perspective, to be honest, I feel like the biggest uh, missing link on overhead press strength, for example, has more to do with uh, the trainee's ability to brace the abdominal wall and a weak lower back, which is why I always train my uh, overhead press on Monday after two days off. Because trying to improve your overhead press the day, like 24 hours after a squat or a deadlift workout, forget it. Mm. It's not, not going to happen because your lower back and abdominal wall won't be able to stabilize the torso for you to exert strength on your uh, overhead pressing movement. So that to me is like a very clear uh, missing link aside from obviously like you said, if people have like range of motion issue, a weak rotator cuff, shoulder pain, that's a different factor but like purely generally speaking, lower back abdominal wall. Interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, that must be why you have that nice little column of posterior chain uh, apparatus in the kilo in the kilo. Jim Rodden and I were looking at a couple of the mm. uh, the videos you've got on your website, and there's some um, lovely yeah, machinery. Yeah, yeah the 45, yeah, exactly. the 90 degree. Yeah, yeah. awesome have stuff. Have it all. Have it all. <laughs> all right. Um, what about uh, to give our listeners a little bit more of an insight into um, you know your your programming prowess? What about uh, volume uh, per, well, ha- how do you look at that? Do you look, so I think I, I saw one of your clips on um, YouTube there, you looked at total tonnage, I think in, in, in one instant, now, this might've been for a, f- uh, a fat loss specific uh, 12 week mesocycle, but like, what do you, uh, where are you throwing volume? Do you certain, start at a certain amount? Obviously, you know, beginner intermediate advanced it would it would vary but where do you look at uh throwing the 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 volume and how do you look at the volume total or body part specific over a a weekly microcycle over the three weeks and does it change uh mesocycle to mesocycle do you titrate volume up uh for a fat loss and or like strength do you keep volume pretty static like talk about the volume side of things for me please yeah that's a good question i mean for strength purposes for my general training uh I tend to look at the number of sets, like the total sets per workout as like my main determinant. Yep. Uh, in my experience, like with uh, athletes or like uh, most of the people I've trained, a workout of anywhere from 18 to 24 sets uh, you sh- do, does the trick for the most part, assuming you're training properly. You know, you're, you're, you're using the max effort for your A series, the repeated effort for your B series, the submaximal effort for your C series. 18, 24 sets, pretty good. Yep. I do use tonnage, but I use mostly tonnage on uh, the primary lift. So my goal over time is I want, let's say, my bench press tonnage. I want my bench press tonnage to continuously keep going up slowly, but it has to keep going up over time. If it's not, there's something wrong in the programming. But I don't necessarily crank up the amount of sets, but my vo- my tonnage will improve simply because of his uh, increased uh, load uh, strength and his increased load uh, same thing with total tonnage the total tonnage it's cool but it's misleading sometimes because if yeah. you have an exercise like a 
a step up, for example, you might just be using like a five kilo dumbbells. So it, do, you know, it doesn't really account for your body weight necessarily. So it kind of screws up the total tonnage score. But typically, a upper body workout, you'll be up around 15 to 20,000 pounds of tonnage per workout. Lower body, you'll be 20 to 25,000 pounds of tonnage for one of these classical workouts. If you're doing giant sets, like obviously it's going to be way more, like 50 to 60,000. But with fat loss and hypertrophy specific training blocks, I use uh, to gauge volume, I use total time under tension, which in my opinion Mm. is the uh, most accurate way to look at volume because, you know, if you just look at sets and reps, it's kind of misleading because if you're doing your sets and reps on a 1-0-1-0 tempo or a 4-0-1-0 tempo, in terms yeah. of volume and exertion, it's completely different. Yeah. So uh, I, I look at total TUT and that's what I manipulate over time. I still undulate it, but yeah. that's my uh, target. That's what I manipulate. And do you, do you manipulate that by increasing, uh, if you were increasing it, uh, tempos or, or extra reps? Like how do you uh, titrate that? between it's a mix of both to be honest it's either yeah. it's going to be a little bit more sets uh, or less sets but more exercises uh, longer right. tempo slower tempo the more advanced the client is the more parameters i'm going to change from phase to phase right very cool but like yeah. for for example like just as a side note for fun facts for clients like for fat loss purposes I find it impossible to do a workout of more than 2,400 seconds of total time under tension, which is actually 40 minutes of actual work. Because if you try to go beyond that, the workout almost becomes too aerobic in nature and you're not really getting anything out of it. So that's, a, yeah. that's interesting, 2,400. So yeah. that, that's when I know that I'm, I'm pretty maxed out on volume. And now if I want to keep going up, I need to increase the difficulty of the training program. I, I cannot, because you cannot keep cranking up volume forever. Yes. It doesn't work. Well, it depends on your uh, <laughs> pharmaceutical intervention there, uh, Stefan, yeah, which is not a yeah, skill set that you have, but, uh, you know, just throwing it out there. Cat amongst the pigeons, you know. But um, I want to talk about uh, nutrition, how uh, not really just how you manipulate energy balance because I think it's pretty cool from memory you do something a little different to what most people do in a fat loss phase but before we go there um, while we're on the the training side of things deloading um, do you feel it's a a necessary uh, uh, evil like across the board or certain um, demographics like the athletes more so than gen pop do you think gen pop work hard enough to warrant a deload like um, could you give us a little bit of insight into your uh, thought processes behind the, the the deloading and what it looks like for you and, and how frequently yeah i don't i don't use deloads because i do i use three week mesocycles and each and every one of my workouts are different so by the time i'm done with a mesocycle i've only benched three times i've only dipped three times yeah so i, I don't you don't need a deload necessarily because now by the time i i switch mesocycles on the fourth week, now I'm introducing a new exercise in that first week, especially if you're a beginner, you kind of have to readapt to this. Yep. So it's kind of like a deload in itself. Yep. Mm. Now, if I were to train, uh, you know, like some coaches, they only, they only prescribe one upper, one lower. 
that repeats twice a week for three weeks. So that's six exposure to the exact same movement pattern. At that point, you kind of have to deload on the third and sixth workout. But that comes for deep marsh mid bleakers. They used to do that, but the thing is, is Olympic weightlifting, right? So the movement patterns are always the same. Yeah. So there's there's not a, as much intangible at strength and conditioning training. So that's why I don't deload, especially not with jump pop, because like you said, I mean, if you're benching like 20 kilo, uh, squatting 20 kilos, <laughs> yeah, you don't really need a deload. <laughs> True, true, true. And what about uh, after you, because uh, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it 12-week uh, uh, macro cycle? Then you go, if it was fat loss, specifically, say, for example, for that 12 weeks, do you then do it a like a, a, a sort of in-between phase and then you'll do another 12-week fat loss? How, how does the, would it look like over the course of a, a year long of programming and, and it was all fat loss specific, for example, do you do that? Like it's 12 weeks, you know, aggressively yeah, targeting I mean, fat loss it, and then you take... It's exactly that. So like I'll hit fat loss really, really hard for 12 weeks. And then I do what I call transitional cycles where uh, I'll focus maybe more on absolute strength yeah. um, for that 12-week period. And then if there's still some fat loss to go, I'll, I'll move on to another more advanced fat, fat loss block. But I don't like to do... Uh, two fat loss block back to back because I mean uh, for those who see my fat loss program that I sell online they're freaking brutal because when I deal with fat loss I just do full body workouts mm -hmm. mm. uh, there's a ton of volume a lot of compound lift it's pretty brutal so in my opinion and I'm not like I just want to be clear I'm, I'm these are not necessarily methods that I would use with a competitive, a competitive bodybuilder. No. This, this is not from 10, going to 10% to 4% on stage. I'm talking about like a 20% yeah. Yeah. body fat guy who wants to go down to 10 or 12, right? But that's the, so, that's the cool thing. That's what pretty much all our listeners deal with. I mean, yeah. some do with physique prep for sure, but I think most would be interested in, okay, I've got someone 20%, how do I get them to 10? Mm. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm loving exploring this uh, perspective from you, Stefan. Uh, and, and do you think that's a, like a more, uh, I mean, the body could maybe handle it, but just psychologically doing another 12-week block of that that type of programming, it just, it, you know, it would just psychologically be very hard to deal with. Mm. I mean, it would, but the, the thing about the, the thing about all of the information that I give out whenever I talk about like volume manipulation and all that stuff is because my time in St. Louis, I was so fortunate to have all these these ducks and nurses and chiros available there. So I tested everything. So all, all my my volume manipulations are based off of uh, I, I would always have my clients go through a phase and then I would measure a DHA cortisol ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, now we're like, we're, we have to go back to 2006, 2007, 2008. So that was my barometer at the time. So that's what I use to gauge how much volume and how much drop in volume I need to undulate yeah. and for how long I need to do it before you reach a point of diminishing return. And the problem is if I kept on cranking up the volume and if I kept going beyond 12 weeks, what happened is that DHA cortisol ratio became completely out of whack. So on a long-term fat loss perspective, it was not very effective. Yeah. So that's why like, I, I, I like to hit it hard because nobody likes fat loss anyways. So hit it hard, 
then move back. And that, here's the thing. If you're doing 12 weeks of that program and you're not eating like an asshole, yeah. if you don't lose fat, it's because you were cheating. So to do an, another 12-week phase, it's not that's not your problem. That's not what you need. You need to learn to eat better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's an awesome opportunity to segue uh, sideways slightly to your nutritional philosophy with that 12-week block because Tommy, he, he doesn't, you know, Stefan, you don't reduce calories. You actually, as the, the, the volume increases throughout each three-week mesocycle with greater time and attention, I think, you know, you actually drive uh, some more calories to, um, to cater for the, the increased workload and that seems to work well. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I want to make sure that the audience know that I, I am not a nutrition nutrition expert yeah. by any means. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but it, me, the problem I have with uh, it's really interesting the world of nutrition when you're 41 years old because <laughs> I, I've I've seen trends disappear, go to something <laughs> else. Now the trends have disappeared in the 90s. Now they're back. So it's <laughs> so it's very interesting for me personally. But the, the one thing I will say is when you're dealing with Gen Pop, that's my, my personal experience. Most Gen Pop have metabolic damage to a certain extent. So a lot of those Gen Pop guys, they come to you and they're only already eating like maybe 1,100 calories. Yeah. They eat two, two, three meals a day and you actually count it and it's 1,100 calories. So what am I going to do? Keep dropping the calories for them to lose fat? No, I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to mess them up. Yeah. So the, the way I see it is uh, it, it's kind of based on the old uh, John Berardi protein turnover rate effect. So what, what I, the way I see it is, okay, you're metabolically damaged. You're fat. You're 24% body fat even though you only eat 1,100 calories, but you're inactive. Yeah. Your, body is, your body is just ineffective. So I'm gonna, we're going to train hard. Yep. There's going to be a lot of volume, but now you need to start eating. And at first, they have no appetite. At first, they have to force feed their breakfast. So their calories are actually increasing at first, maybe. Yeah. But now you're actually making them more effective. They actually have more energy. They're going to train harder. They're going to train better. Yeah. So now they're going to use these calories a little bit better. And now what happens is you're training with a, a lot of volume in the first accumulation. Now I undulate, so my intensification, the reps might still be the same. That's where a lot of people may, are confused. They think I undulate the reps with fat loss. I don't. I undulate the total TUT. So yeah. I decrease the volume to allow you to overcompensate. But by the time I move on to the next accumulation, now I crank up the volume even more than accumulation one. So now it allows you to keep trying to increase your, your furnace, for lack of a better yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. So you're, be you're becoming more of a fat burning engine instead of the the passive me metabolically damaged uh, person you were before so yeah. so that's what i mean when i say that i that i increase calories it's it's understanding that a lot of people when you start their damage it's yeah. not yeah. like cuz i don't i don't deal with with guys who come to me at 13% body fat already eating 3800 calories yeah they're they're healthy yeah. and make sense drop the calories yeah but yeah. when you're yeah. When you're messed up, you cannot, man, because I don't want to have my people eating 700 calories a day. No. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is by the time they've done, uh, you know, eight to you know, 12 weeks of training, what they're actually 
physically capable of doing within a 60-minute workout is expending so much more. You know, they're, they're just yeah. doing so much more work with all that training they're, under their belt that they, they just simply need more fuel. Dare say there'd be a little more muscle mass in that 12 weeks as well, driving, Absolutely. driving metabolism. Very, very no, cool. Ex- exactly. And also, just one quick little pointer, but what a lot of coaches forget too is the general population, especially with the females, if they don't have a training background, when they come to you, they can only use about seven to twelve percent of all of their motor units. So they're not. That's why they they do a set of ten, a set of squat to ten reps to failure, and they look like they're ready to go ten seconds afterwards because they're mm-hmm. tapping into nothing. But yeah. once you've been training consistently for like three months, now you're 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 able to recruit so much more motor units so that's yeah. why the me- metabolic demand of the training program and the hormonal output of the training program is so much more substantial so at this point you're actually going to sp- peak your testosterone you're actually going to peak your gh like studies show you know like 400 percent peak post-exercise if you're doing yeah. a lactate based workout yes. obviously it's short-lived but it's still yeah. there all adds up over time. And tell me, would you then uh, slightly different if uh, you know you did one 12-week block, you had your transition phase, you did some intensification um, there, and then you went into another 12-week block? I dare say that would all, that would look different to the first 12-week block if it was the same uh, Gen Pop client that was putting through it. That would be a different, same principles, but you would uh, you know energy balance would be a little different in that second block. Yeah, I mean, you'd reassess at that point in time. So, like, it, what what might happen is the guy starts at 22. After the first uh, 12 weeks, he might be down to, let's say, 14. Yeah. Then you do the transitional phase. He's back up to 16.5, let's say. Yeah. So then you reassess. My volume will be higher. Yep. The complexity of the programs will be tougher. So now yep, at that yep, point yep. in time, you might be able to get him from 16.5 down to, let's say, 11. All right, cool. So it'd be some sort of progression on that first, so that uh, total time under tension or whatever parameters you're manipulating would be, you would start a little higher, then that would follow the the natural progressions like you described uh, for the first uh, 12 weeks. Love it. Exactly. Before we uh, move on from uh, from the training side of things, what I mean, your fundamental philosophy is get them strongest. You know what? Uh, you know, and and the rest will sort of fall into place almost. Um, with with some uh, uh, structured programming, what about uh, there's a lot in the industry uh, these days talking about the uh, the notion of intent and trying to create this uh, mind muscle connection and emphasizing that side of things more so. And I think it's usually at the expense of load, so they reduce load and and concentrate and feeling movements. Just want to get your thoughts on because um, it sounds like it would uh, sort of go against your. Uh, principles there and I know you've a lot of uh, experience uh, looking at the research and whatnot thoughts uh, shed some light into that whether you have I think it has its place or um, you know you'd rather invest uh, time elsewhere adding load like talk talk to me through that side of things I mean I'm not I'm not a fan of that I call I I have a nickname for people who do that I call them squeezers (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) the, the, the thing listen Okay, if you're if you're starting training and you cannot feel your chest or your lats, or I remember when I started training and I was doing pull downs, it took me forever to actually feel my lats, right? Yeah. So I I, I get it. If you're trying to learn and you're you're you know the load is lighter, you're going slower, you're trying to get them to. I get that. But if 
this is your main premise of training to actually get truly bigger and stronger, I think it's a big mistake because yeah. uh, you can't deny the fact that the, the predominant factor that makes you grow bigger and or stronger is mechanical tension. Yeah. And it, the tension is not about squeezing, it's load dependent. And, you know, I mean, again, coming from Montreal in the 90s, if you went to Progen, which like is like the mecca of bodybuilding in Montreal, mm. yeah, like huge dudes. <laughs> I've never seen anyone in the 90s bodybuilder squeezing. Ronnie <laughs> Coleman was not squeezing. Yeah. Dorian Yates was not squeezing. So I, I'm, not, I'm not downplaying mind-muscle connection. I'm not saying it's not important to know and feel what you're working. Mm. I just don't like... Uh, when that becomes the entire training philosophies and then you have like a 18 year old natural trainee training his entire week on light load trying to feel the muscle like that, that yeah. I, I don't I, I can't yeah and, and, and you know avoiding load over time has a host of uh, you know downfalls as well so I mean even though it may have a place and and certainly from a hypertrophy perspective, outside of uh, the mind-muscle connection and, and squeezing and all that type of stuff, we, you know, the research now, you know yourself, that they've shown that, you know, low percentage of 1RM taken to failure. But again, it comes back to what you said, that motor unit recruitment that's, uh, that's taken place. But are you, place. are you referring to the, Schein, the article Scheinfeld posted from 2011, where he has like 30% of 1RM led to more muscle protein synthesis? Are you referring to this? Uh, the one I'm talking about was they had two groups. One, um, when uh, effort or you know reps in reserve, how close the uh, set was taken to failure when they were not uh, when they were uh, equal. So the 85 percent, I think it was, um, and that wasn't taken anywhere near to failure. That elicited X amount of uh, myofibrillar uh, muscle protein synthesis. And then the low percentage 1RM, uh, when it wasn't taken anywhere near failure, so the effort in, in the set was uh, equated, you know, the 85% trumped and it was much greater. But when they then took the 40%, this is well and truly after Schoenfeld's 2011. I don't think this is that old, this study. But when it was taken to um, uh, closer to failure, if not complete failure, I think it was one rep short of failure, uh, so the level of effort in the the set um, compared to the 85% group, the 40% group, I think it was, it got actually greater uh, magnitude of muscle protein, myofibrillar muscle protein synthesis, and um, then uh, the 85% when uh, it was taken to or close to the point of failure. So that's yeah. the, the sort of caveat that and uh, that, that comes with that type of training but that's nothing to do with my muscle <coughs> excuse me my muscle connection is just uh you know uh, i guess a perspective that you can drive hypertrophy via another mechanism other than just uh load on the bar i guess is 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 that uh, realization from from those studies what they're seeing anyway it's just like what what I don't like about studies sometimes, and like the one I'm referring to, it was kind of interesting because it showed 30% of 1RM leads to more protein synthesis than 85% of 1RM, and the abstract make, made it look like it was a, a clear thing. But when you actually read the entire article, the problem is they were doing leg extensions, and yeah. 
one group was doing 85% of one RM for for uh, five sets. So it was five. It was basically five sets of five. They did like 31 reps on average. But then the other group also did five sets with the 30% of one RM, but they were doing 50 reps. So obviously, yeah. like yeah. you're not you're comparing apples to an orange. There's like one group has a total volume of 25 reps. The other group has a total volume of 300 reps. So obviously, two hours after the event, the 300 rep volume will have more actual protein synthesis. But I just wish that sometimes studies, yeah. they had strength coach being involved. And instead of a freaking leg extension for five sets, it will be an actual squat workout, like a real exercise. Mm. And then you compare like 85% of one RM squat workout with a 30% of one RM squat workout, look at the hormonal surge from the session and actually look at what the muscle protein synthesis comes out to after. But you never see studies like that. It's always these controlled, weird setups. Yeah, I mean, yes. look, and, and, and like I said, like, you know, there's also caveats that come with it and, and you know, connective tissue, um, tendon strength comes with, you know, using high percentage of one RM, so there's lots of sort of, yeah, but if you are gonna do that, you gotta take all these things to into consideration, and I think, you know, in a, in a, in a perfect world, we would, you know, all do 85% plus, and, and, you know, live in that world, but, you know, over time, you know, I think, uh, you know, having, I guess, an understanding that you can step away from, when I'm talking about hypertrophy specifically, and I know your philosophy is a little different to mine, but you can step away uh, and you know invest time and volume into you know other rep schemes and not be at a disadvantage from a hypertrophy perspective like knowing that you can and you know the connective tissue and tendons may you know i guess have uh longevity long term if you do fluctuate but it's it's fundamentally what everyone does anyway i mean everyone you know, as yeah. far as I'm aware, we'll undulate between intensification accumulation. So we, we inherently do it anyway. But I, what I liked, it just, um, again, put a little method to the madness that we're already doing and a little bit more rationale into perhaps and not being, you know, overly concerned that you're not always at that, you know, 80, 80% plus or, you know, 70, 85% plus, you know, um, side of things. So that, that that's what I took away from that. Um, yeah. that information but yeah you're right but the, the, in, in in their defense the evidence-based guys there are they are doing better studies these days and and i'm pretty sure you will have you know uh, studies that that do actually uh replicate closer to what we're we're doing with our athletes and 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 clientele like you said you know some a squat workout instead of a you know a, a an isolated leg extension for example no, no, for sure, and I think I think Australia and New Zealand are probably uh, the the most um, recently. I feel they have the best studies in strength conditioning. Yeah, cool, very cool. Awesome. Yeah. Stefan, it must have been a very interesting or formative time of your career, where you were, when you were in that private facility with the all the other therapists, and you are able yeah. to actually run tests and collate data and do all this kind of stuff. Are you were are you a a bit of a sort of a mad scientist behind the scenes to a certain degree? Uh, I mean, kind of, I guess. I mean, I'm, I've always been very data-driven since, mm. I, since I've been a kid. Like, I've, I, I still have all the programs of every client I've trained since I started professionally when I was 20. Wow. I, I, I gathered and analyzed all of that data. It's kind of 
one of my things for sure. Tell me, Stefan, um, before we uh, wrap things up today, these days the pathology work, um, are you you're delving into that with, do you think it has its place with general population? Do you like to run a, a base level of uh, bloods before you, uh, ideally before you work with someone? Yeah, on a one-on-one basis, yes, I think it's a good, a good tool. Uh, with my group training, no, I mean the price point for that doesn't really call for this, but one-on-one, I like it. I mean, my like, like probably my biggest mentor these days is James Laval, and uh, he's like with anything metabolism. I don't personally, I don't think there's anybody better on the planet, and so I'm very fortunate to have him like living 25 minutes away. Awesome. So. I, I use I refer a lot of our one-on-one clients to him, so we can actually deal with all the metabolic issues and mm. all the blood tests. And he, he's like he always his first test is always the comprehensive uh, profile, which I think is really cool because you get a lot of information. Now, as far as the food sensitivity test, to me, uh, un- unless you're really sick, I don't really like it. And and, and this is because of my background with it. Like in St. Louis with the athletes, uh, in 2008, we started doing the uh, MRT test. Yeah. And we would, do, uh, we would do two tests for each player, and the second test we would change the names. And we got the test back, and everything was all over the place. There was no correlation on the same guy. Really? So then we called the, the lab, and we're like, so what's up with that? And he's like, oh, we're sorry. We had a, we had a new uh, technician in the lab, so... We're going to give you free uh, test to redo it again. So like, what the hell? So how am I to know that the next time it's still not going to be a new technician? Yeah. That's completely unreliable. And then the other thing is if you're dealing with gen pop or who have a disease or some issues of some kind, and they're only like the, av- the average person, they only eat meat like four times a week, let's say. Yeah. That's cool. But somebody like me, when I, de- when I do these uh, food sensitivity tests, the problem is I eat like three, three pounds of meat a day. So let's say it says that chicken, fish, and beef, I'm, in, I'm sensitive, and I'm in the red, and it tells you to eat what you're not sensitive. So let's say pork, lamb, and tilapia, let's say. Now I eat this for, th- for uh, eight to 12 weeks, but I eat three pounds of it. So yeah. now what happens is 12 weeks later, yeah. my chicken, beef, and salmon, I'm good. And now yeah. pork lamb and red. So I'm like, what the hell? What's the, <laughs> yeah. what's the point of it then? Yeah. You know, might yeah. as well just rotate. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Seven, before you go, I mean, have you got any, we've got a lot of uh, trainers and coaches that listen to the podcast. Have you got any tips on coping with um, high volume of, of program writing and, and becoming more efficient with what they do? I mean, obviously you've got a few uh, wonderful tools available uh, to expand people's knowledge on on those kinds of things, but um, what are some of your own workflow systems? Do you do all your programming in one hit? You, do you have creative times of the week? Like yeah. How do you approach it? Yeah. Do you sort of have a, a bank of uh, programs that you delve into um, once someone starts? Mm. Yeah, I mean, like I've spent about two hundred hours building my online platform on on the Vitruvian software from Polykin Group, yep. so. It, I'm like it took me like I said it took me 200 hours to build it but now I'm at a point where it takes me about six minutes to write a program because it's everything is system based mm. and I have like uh, 396 templates that are already integrated and that follow a progression 
uh, and I have templates depending if, if your weakness is bench, overhead, deadlift, blah, blah, blah. So it's more a question of, you know, I, I, I copy paste what I need and then retweak the rep schemes and or switch the exercises that the client can't or cannot do. But the, the core structure, it's already uh, templated because I, I think you, to be successful with this, with online training, you have to be systematic. Yeah. So if you're trying to reinvent the wheel every time, you're, you're actually going to make more mistakes. So, you know, yeah. the structure is already built. There's no flaws in it. So now it's, it's more a matter of like fine tuning it to the actual individual you're dealing with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for our listeners that are uh, heading in that direction, have a, have some sort of uh, well start creating a database and then you know pick an appropriate template, get in there, tweak it, you know adjust things based on the the individual. But the the the, the base structure is, the is, is, there. is there to Put save some the time. Some good macro cycles together and, and plug people into the system. Definitely. Yeah. Really yeah, cool. Exactly. Mm. Yep. All right, Stefan. Well, mate, thank you so much for your time. I mean, where, how can people um, get in contact with you, and what what sort of services are available? Yeah. So, I mean, we have our, uh, our um, uh, internet page, KiloStrengthSociety dot com. We have Facebook, Kilo Strength Society. We have Instagram. Um, you can also reach if you have questions at info at KiloStrengthSociety dot com. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for, for continuing education, we have an online course on program design. Uh, we, have a, we have two new courses this uh, coming up in 2019, Advanced Strategies to Program Design 2, which will be like some more advanced uh, training and analytics and methods. We have a, an actual uh, techn technique course, so it's going to be more practical, hands-on. We had a lot of demands for that, so we just decided to create it. And, uh, you know, I, I still write articles for Thib Army and his website. Yeah. Uh, and, and you do have uh, internships uh, at your facility there at Kilo, yeah? Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do. Like people, they, they fly in for anywhere from one day to five days and we spend the whole day from nine to five and we're just hammering whatever topic they want to. There's no set um, structure. It's, it really is whatever you want to deal with, talk about. That's what we focus on. Beautiful. Mm. So, if any of our listeners are interested in that, and of course, Huntington Beach is uh, is quite uh, pleasant as well, Tommy. Mm. <laughs> any 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 plans before you go, mate? Any plans to to get down under? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to. I'd love to. A lot of people have asked. Mm. Um, tw Twenty nineteen would be a, a good time for me to go if I'm ever gonna go. Wow. Well, you have to. Uh, we'll see what we can organize. No, yeah, no, uh, I'd love to. Uh, I mean, it's been, uh, people have been asking me now for three years, and I always like, yeah. uh, soon, 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 but I've just been too busy trying to build this here, but I think 2019 is going to be a little, things are, are smoother here, so I can yeah. actually get away. Absolutely awesome. Well, uh, we'll see what happens in that regard. Absolute pleasure on my behalf today, Stefan. We could, uh, I could like what we did when when I came in. We were sitting down over coffee, talking shop. Man, I could talk all day about this sort of stuff. I absolutely love it. So, yeah, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Stefan. No worries, mate. Talk see to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Well, there he was, Stefan Kazult. 
I really enjoyed that conversation, Rodan. I think uh, he's the authority. He certainly is. I like um, obviously the three-week mesocycles. I think is really no, cool. No, no, too short. <laughs> too short. I didn't. I didn't say that on air. No, but I guess we have to always uh, remember for what what the goal is here. Obviously, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. what you're trying to do, hypertrophy specific. Then yes, yeah. you want a longer duration of time mm. uh, for Stefan, where he always wants that element of strength and performance. And he does three weeks it. to avoid detraining of yes. certain movement patterns. I think that's really cool. Data. Same. Yeah. You got to get the data. Got to get the data. Got to get the yeah. tabulate the data but maybe uh like uh i know i said uh, like it's on my to-do list but the uh the online um program design course that he's uh, doing out of kilo yeah had a bit of a sniff around the line it's got uh, a ton of modules and there's like exams and all sorts looks of really stuff good. Like it looks really yeah. good looks slick and peanuts i think it's a couple hundred bucks, couple two, hundred bucks. two or three hundred bucks yeah. so um, awesome. doing awesome stuff over there and uh i really like the um you know the the manipulation of uh time under tut Tut, tut, yes. getting, getting manipulated rather than uh, increasing you know, sets and that type of stuff. Cool. Um, my thing there is, is it, it's excellent if, if the individual is really good at um, tempos. Actually doing it. Yeah. going to do the tempos. Mm. Like, nah, look, they're going to be shit. I'll just give them an extra reps or sets. But uh, but in a perfect world, I think um, that's a really awesome way. And, and a, a different perspective. And, different and, perspective. Uh, and, and obviously yeah, those, very effective. Yep. Yeah, and those 12-week uh, blocks of fat loss. and Miso soups. Yeah, I like that very much. So... Mm. There he was at the uh, Kilo Strength Society. So, yeah, highly recommend any mm. of his uh, courses or online yeah. or buying his programs. Well, uh, I, think I think I mentioned at the end that we we're going to get him out potentially. So, uh, we'll uh, see yeah. if we can get dibs on him. So, anyone else listening, I, I dibs on him <laughs> if he's coming out, all right? Yeah, that's what you need to do. You need yeah. to actually dibs it. Dibs it. On air first. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You heard it here first. Well, uh, that's that for the new studio. I, mm. think, it, I think it can work in here. Mm. I think we mm. can make things. Well, make I think it. Uh, Ah, when we've uh, got yes. the bell, yeah, very that, nice. That, that goes a long way. Excellent. So, thank you very much for uh, listening to another episode. I hope yeah, you have a great okay. day. And well, thank, thank you for listening <laughs> to our episode, Tom. And thank you, Cam. <laughs> and thank you, Cam. Mm. Bye.